Isn't it wonderful how... <laughs> uh, you know, I've spent years developing that gift. <laughs> Someday if you want to know how, $50 a lesson, I'll teach you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> my, uh, I do my best to play the clarinet when there's no one at home. Occasionally, Greg and Mark have to endure my efforts, especially when I'm practicing the altissimo register. They wonder what on earth is that, and sometimes I do too, and so does God. But Second uh, <laughs> Corinthians, well, what I was starting to say was, isn't it wonderful how Larry can bring such a sense of peace as he plays so beautifully? We thank you, Larry. Second Corinthians chapter 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you, you are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death, in letters engraved on stones, came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it was, how shall the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory." For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory on account of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Having therefore such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not as Moses who used to put a veil over his face that the sons of Israel might not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened. For until this very day at the reading of the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But, Whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, 
And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. You recall that Peter wrote concerning the epistles of Paul, Our beloved Paul also, according to the word given to him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. And frankly, having been meditating on this chapter for the last several days, Peter's statement clearly came to mind. Because there are some things in this chapter that are very forthright and very easy to understand. Some of them are hard to understand because the manner in which Paul uses metaphor and even uses the same metaphor to teach opposite lessons. So I must admit, this past week I've struggled as I've meditated on a portion of this uh, chapter. First, let me give you the background. From ancient times, the city of Corinth had been a very wealthy and powerful city. As the Roman Empire began to spread, Corinth and Rome had a conflict. And so in 146 AD, the Roman consul Mummius came against Corinth, destroyed it, killed every man, and sold all the women and children into slavery. For a hundred years, Corinth was a rubble, totally uninhabited, as a sign to the world that no one dare oppose the Roman Empire. In 44 AD, Julius Caesar decided to refound the city, and he populated it with freed slaves from many nations. Also, it became a location where retired Roman soldiers were sent. That was their pension. They were given a plot of ground and a place to live in Corinth or Philippi was the other colony uh, where that was done. It also had one of the uh, ancient world's busiest seaports, actually two, one on either side. And so this city was populated by people from many nations, uh, former slaves, former soldiers, full of sailors who were coming to the seaports. It was a city that had many religions. The outstanding religion was that of Aphrodite, the temple of Aphrodite in Corinth was well known with the thousand prostitutes that were there to service the adherents of that religion. And Corinth became, again, very prosperous and very powerful. It was wild. It was unrestrained. It was a city of passion. And although the Greek word is not used in the New Testament, one of the Greek words meaning to fornicate is korathiazomai, be a Corinthian, fornicate. And that's, that's the character of that particular city. It grew to be a, a city of around 300 to 500,000, depending upon which scholar you read as they talk about the city. And so into this huge, very wicked, very wild, 
very unrestrained city, came the Apostle Paul in 51 A.D. with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He stayed there for 18 months to two years, and when he left, there was a thriving church. As a matter of fact, of all the churches that were established after the ministry of Paul, by the ministry of Paul, Corinth probably was the largest. But it also was the most problematic. On one occasion when Paul was in Ephesus and he heard about all the troubles that were going on in Corinth, he wrote them a letter. We, we don't have that letter. It was lost. He made a hurried trip from Ephesus to Corinth trying to straighten things out. It was a brief trip. He didn't stay there long. He went away. Later he wrote another letter, which we know as 1 Corinthians, which really ought to be 2 Corinthians because we lost the first one. And then 2 Corinthians, which ought to be 3 Corinthians. After he left, there were itinerant teachers who heard about this very prosperous church flourishing. And so they thought, here's an opportunity for us. And they came to Corinth. They came to Corinth with letters of recommendation. Evidently, these were very clever individuals with charismatic uh, persona. And they began to say to the people, we are real apostles. Paul is an imposter. He really isn't an apostle. And they began to level certain things. Here's some of the things they said. We have letters of recommendation from people of note. Paul doesn't have such credentials. Did he show you a letter from Peter or James or any of the Jerusalem elders? When Paul was with you, he worked with his hands. No real apostle would ever do that. He would insist the church support him, even as we're doing. He may write great letters, but when he's present, he's nobody. He sure isn't a great order. He isn't highly regarded in Jerusalem. For that matter, some in Jerusalem consider him to be a troublemaker, even presents heresy because he teaches people that they don't have to obey the law of Moses. We're orthodox, and of course, we teach that you need to obey the law of Moses. He's an unstable vacillator. He said he was going to visit you. He hasn't been here yet, and that was several months ago. Now, you know, we're not vacillators like that. On and on they went, disparaging Paul and his apostleship every way they could while they elevated themselves to the place of prominence. The heart of 2 Corinthians, the letter we call 2 Corinthians, is Paul's response to their charges and to their claims. I responded in a number of ways, but this morning we're only going to note the response that's contained in this text immediately before us, and frankly as we read it and listen to it, it's very encouraging. The first thing that stands out as we begin reading this chapter is the value of relationship. Paul said, I don't need a letter of recommendation. I'm in your hearts. You're in my heart. It would be like a father wanting to have a, needing to have a letter of recommendation to his children. As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 4, he said, I have become a father to you in Christ Jesus. How can we read Paul's 
comments here without thinking about the surpassing value of relationships in the kingdom of God. You know, last night at the uh, coffee bunker, I sat next to Jim and Laura Grinnell, and as we were leaving, just tears began to fill my eyes. And I thought, how could I ever thank God for the blessings that he has given us in each other? Isn't that beautiful? So many times in the scripture we find the church described as a body and the interdependence of the body. And when one member suffers, the others suffer. And how we we need each other. And when one rejoices, we all rejoice. And when one weeps, we all weep. The day a church stops being a family, stops being a body, something has been lost. I have very dear friends who for a long time attended a Tulsa church. This church began to persist in preaching weak theology. They even began to deny the infallibility of Scripture. And so some in the church became disturbed about this, and one man representing that point of view met with the leaders and pled with them to return to what he considered the true faith. He was ignored. So two men went to the leader following Matthew 18, and he was ignored. And finally, a group of nine or ten families, it's not clear in my mind which it was, wrote a letter to the leaders. And then these families, nine or ten, met with the leaders and said, you know, can't we come back to the foundation upon which this church was built? And they were told no. And so, not all, but many of these families left the church. And they're now attending another church in Tulsa. And when they were asked why they went to that other church, they said, well, we can go to this church and we can just come and sit on Sunday and not become involved with anybody. We could just come and sit. I talked to another man attending that second church. And he said, I just show up. I don't like the worship. It's so loud it makes my chest vibrate. But he said, by the way, he's a sound engineer, so it really bothers him. But he said, I can just come and sit and leave. Isn't that sad? Isn't that sad? Why would anyone want to just go and sit? Unless you think, well, it's some kind of religious activity, and I get points with God by showing up on Sunday. You know, it's obvious here that one of the things you folks like most about this church is that break that happens uh, right after the uh, mission moment. Now in Stanton, Virginia, when you go there and preach, you're really surprised because in the middle of the service, they do the same thing, only it's 15 minutes, and they have a coffee donut bar over at the side. And so folks have coffee and donuts and juice for 15 minutes. Now that would never work here, would it? I can just see Bill or Dave and Joel shouting, come back. Uh, Larry would have to play extra loud on the piano. (laughs) 
And what a joy that is. This morning I just stood for a minute over here and looked at everybody enjoying each other. I thank God that in this church relationships are real. And I, I brag on you a little bit about that. That's the way God wants the local church to be. I commend the Women's Council who recently has been having meetings designed to help the women get to really know one another to know their backgrounds and know their challenges. You know, you can work together in the church sometimes and still lead a closed life. It's wonderful to deliberately have programs where we become transparent. And I thank the Women's Council for moving in that way. And you know, there's another thing about this relationship of knowing one another. I've used this as an illustration in the past, but I want to use it again because it makes the point so well. If somebody came to me and said they saw Gordon Wright in a hotel in downtown Kiev cavorting with a bunch of prostitutes, I would say you are a dirty dog liar <laughs> or you don't understand what you saw because I know Gordon. Now if they said to me, I saw Gordon in a hotel lobby in downtown Kiev watching a television movie about exploding cars and soldiers fighting, I would say, oh yeah, that's Gordon. <laughs> but if anybody made that first charge, I wouldn't even need to investigate it because I know this man. That's the way we should know each other. Let's be honest about our failures, our temptations, our weaknesses, and our strengths as we live together in the body of Christ. So Paul could say, I don't need any letters of commendation. You know me, and I know you, and you're in my heart, and I am in your heart. The second thing that Paul speaks of in this chapter is our inadequacy and the source of our adequacy, such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. You know, as we read Paul's life, he acknowledges that as being apparent, and it is apparent. Again, when he came to Corinth, in Acts chapter 18, you remember briefly stayed with the, the tent-making couple, and then... When his companions showed up, he became bold, and the Lord, pardon me, the, the Lord spoke to him in a night vision and said, Paul, be bold because I have many people in this city. Now, at that point, there weren't very many Corinthians in the kingdom of God, maybe five. But Jesus said, I have many people in this city. He had chosen a host of Corinthians to have their hearts open that the gospel would reach them and they would come into the kingdom. And later as Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, he said, you know, the Jews seek after signs, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And then in chapter 2, as Jim Grinnell pointed out last Sunday, 
He said, you know, we didn't come with persuasive wisdom. It wasn't our oratorical skills. It wasn't our ability to debate. We weren't good salesmen, but it was in the power of God. As the Holy Spirit anointed the message and reached into those hearts that the Holy Spirit had opened. If Paul had just preached the gospel, which is the power of God into salvation, nothing would have happened if Jesus had not opened hearts and the Holy Spirit not anointed that message. It was that absolute dependency upon God that brought about this tremendous, tremendous church. Paul said, I had the signs of a true apostle among you. I worked miracles. They were his credentials, but it was a spirit-anointed gospel that brought people to Jesus. Beautiful, beautiful thing. But here's also something else. As we look at the life of Paul, and time and time he emphasizes this, when God anoints someone or empowers someone in a special way, it seems an invariable element that he also brings a weakness to remind us that we are not everything. In 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We know Paul at one point said, I have a thorn in the flesh, so I don't become proud because of many revelations I have. He came to Galatia, passing through Galatia, and became sick, and probably had an eye problem. He said, I came to you in weakness, and if you would, you would have given me your very eyes. But it was because of that weakness that came upon him that he couldn't pass on, and he stayed and preached the gospel in Galatia. And how many times in life do we see that? Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers that ever lived, was a sick man who had to miss off on many Sundays because he was not strong enough to go into the pulpit. Great preacher, but was constantly reminded that we have this treasure in earthen vessels. When you look at the life of Paul, the only thing he ever took credit for was obedience. When he spoke to King Agrippa in Acts 26, 19, talking about the vision and call of Christ, he said, King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedience to the heavenly division, heavenly vision. 1 Corinthians 15, 10, By the grace of God I am what I am. His grace toward me did not prove in vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God within me. So he labored hard and said, Yet even that is by the grace of God. That's a real lesson for all of us, brothers and sisters. Whenever we start to begin using slick human methods to grow the kingdom of God. Instead of relying upon the Lord and His Holy Spirit, we have really gone awry. We must be servants, obedient servants of God, and allow Him to do with our obedience whatever He chooses. That's where Paul rested. The most exciting portion of this passage for me, and frankly the most perplexing, is the last portion 
in which Paul contrasts the old covenant given to Moses on Sinai with the new covenant given by Christ. Here's the background. Exodus chapter 34. After Moses came down from the mountain with the commandments, the Israelites were somewhat astounded by what they saw. For here came a man whose face shone with such brilliance that it scared them. <laughs> and so Moses put a veil over his face. I wondered what that looked like. I, was it like a beekeeper's straw hat with a netting? I don't know. I wonder what did that veil look like? I don't know. But some kind of a veil he put over his face so the people would not be afraid of this shining face. And as you read on in that passage, it says that whenever after the tent of the meeting had been erected and Moses went into the tent of the meeting there to pray and meet with God, he took the veil off, but when he came out, he put it on again. And Paul tells us that after a while, the veil was worn, not because the people were stunned by the brilliance, but because the brilliance started to fade and fade and fade, and the veil was worn so people would not be fully aware of that. I've often wondered, how long did he really do that? For 40 years in the wilderness? I, I don't think he did, but up to a point. Uh, that was done. And Paul said, with the gospel it's different. Nothing fades. Instead of fading, it increases. And he contrasts the old covenant with the new. The old he calls a covenant of death. Think about that. As you read the Mosaic Covenant, and all the laws and all the rituals and everything they had to go through, one of the, perhaps the outstanding thing about that covenant was to remind the Jews of the horribleness of sin. And no sin could be swept under the rug. But every sin had to be paid for. And it was paid for by killing a lamb, paid for by killing a bull, paid for by killing a goat, paid for by killing turtle doves, and in some cases paid for by capital punishment. And so Paul said it was a covenant of death. And there is that constant reminder that every sin has to be paid for. You cannot sweep it under the carpet. You know that's true of our new covenant, isn't it? We come to the Lord's Supper every Sunday, and there we're reminded of the horror of sin, but we don't have to kill anything. We don't have to know capital punishment. The price has been paid. Praise His name. Thank God for that grace. But also, the new covenant is one that grows in glory. It's interesting, 
in Galatians, you read that the old covenant, and some versions say, is a tutor or schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The Greek word there is piagogos. Piagogos. Piagogos means the slave in a wealthy family who was in charge of the moral and intellectual upbringing of the boys of the family. And in these families, a boy could never even step outdoors without his pedagogos with him. And one of the jobs of pedagogos was to conduct the boys from the home to the school where they were tutored and to stay in school and make sure they did their work and learn. And when you read in some literature about the pedagogos, that word is often used to mean a stern master. <laughs> the boys, by and large, didn't like the Patagogos <laughs> because he was a harsh enforcer of the family morals and standards. And that's what Paul said in Galatians, he wrote. That's what the Old Testament is. It's the Patagogos, that, that, that stern master who put these things on us to the point that we began to cry out for the grace that is imparted through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God for that grace. But the temporary nature, and here's where we get into the kicker. Verse 18, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. What does that word mean? The challenge is, if you read some versions, it says, beholding as in a mirror. And you read some versions that say, reflecting as in a mirror. And here's the difference. Beholding means there is some external influence. But as you read, reflecting, there is that internal work of the Holy Spirit that causes the personality of Christ to shine out of us as reflected glory. Two opposite ideas. Is the NIV right? Is the King James right? <laughs> it's interesting, the New Living Translation has it both ways, which is not a translation but an interpretation. It says, beholding we reflect. Frankly, I think that's right. <laughs> so interesting in Scripture how often the Holy Spirit picks a word that can be understood in more than one way and people argue about it when you step back and say but both are right <laughs> I think this is one of those cases this word doesn't occur anywhere else in the New Testament very very rare in Greek and as you read the history of the use of this word you find some commenting on this verse some of the ancient church fathers taking one point of view one the other but would not both be true? As we the word glory even, what does that mean? And you see glory used so many different ways. The Solomon in all his glory. And glory sometimes means brilliance. In one verse it's used speaking of the ethical qualities of God. In some places it's used to mean pride. What does glory mean? 
I sit early in the morning, often in my bed, sitting up in bed, with my Bible and the lamp beside me, praying and meditating. Behind me on the wall is a painting Nancy Harkins did years ago for the Iris Society. And across the room is the dresser with a large mirror. I cannot see the painting, but I do see its reflection. How much is that like the way we see Father God? I see Father God reflected in Jesus as I read about him in the Word. He says, he that has seen me has seen the Father. I see Father God reflected as I look at nature and there subjectively see him. We sang a song about that today, didn't we? We see him, the God of, of eternity, of the universe beyond our own. What a beautiful thing. And there are times when I sit alone with my Bible closed and just meditate upon God. I can't see him. And I constant prayers, O Lord, be real to me. And there's something about the reality of God that comes to me in a reflected way in that time of meditation. But there's something else that goes on too. <laughs> and that's the Holy Spirit inside that is continually transforming me increasingly, progressively into the image of Jesus from glory to glory. And so while there is that external reflection, there is that internal, internal thing taking place. That's what Paul is talking about. How many times have we met someone that we have not seen for years? And the first time we see them, we remember who they used to be. And then we get to know them now and realize this is not the person I used to know. There's a depth of God. This person who used to be a willow blown in the wind is now an oak. Because over the years, from glory to glory, that person progressively has grown into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That doesn't happen by human effort, but it does happen by surrender <laughs> to the being of God. Isn't it beautiful, these lessons Paul has given us in this chapter? the importance and beauty of relationships. Our total adequacy, and adequacy is in Him. And the fact that as we reflect upon Him and as we allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, we conform more and more to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. May His name be praised.